Well, during the season of Advent, we are looking at images of hope. Um, I've picked out several um, what, I, what I trust to be vivid metaphors. I was really looking for, for something that our, our hearts can really stick to. That was in my mind. I was, I was hoping to find something that, that's really, really easy to envision, and yet something that can kind of sink deeper into our souls and affect how we live, affect how we see God and others and ourselves. So we're going through these various passages, some from the Old Testament, some from the New, and looking for these, for these vivid metaphors of hope. And so today our passage is from the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. Uh, the Bible has two testaments. The first one is longer than, than the second one. So if you go to the end of the first one, the end of the Old Testament, the book that's second to last is Zechariah. So if you're looking in the Bible, if you're not familiar, you can find it that way. So before Matthew and before all the New Testament stuff, there's Zechariah only followed by Malachi. So if you open Zechariah to chapter 9, and as you look for Zechariah, which, you know, it's not the easiest book to find in the Bible, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of background. Zechariah and his fellow prophet Haggai were, were ministering, they were serving at, at the specific time in Israel's history. So Israel, as you may know, was in exile in Babylon for 70 years, and then they were coming back. The Lord brought them back to Jerusalem, back to Judea, their homeland, their home city. And they were coming back and rebuilding their lives. They were rebuilding the city, they were rebuilding the temple. And it was discouraging a lot of times because the opposition was there and people would get tired with this kind of the slowness of progress. So God would send prophets to remind them of what they need to be doing and to encourage them to stay faithful and really to encourage them to stay hopeful. And so that's right away we are relating uh, to that. <laughs> some of us are discouraged, some of us are seeing the opposition, whether it comes from without or within, to what God is doing in our lives. And so we're in a very similar situation as they returned exiles. And so Zechariah is sent by God to be one of the prophets to encourage people to keep working, to keep being faithful to God, to keep being hopeful, even as the final deliverance and the final homecoming, the ultimate homecoming, was still in their future. And so Zechariah talked a lot about the Messiah, this, this king that was supposed to come, and only when the Messiah comes will all the enemies be defeated, and, and their land was finally going to be secure, and they will be able to, to live in his kingdom. So with this background in mind, let me read Zechariah 9, beginning in verse 9 and through verse 13. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold of prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow 
I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Now, this is a prophecy, and Zechariah is encouraging the returned exiles in Jerusalem that the Messiah will come, and when he comes, he will triumphantly ride into the city, and he will defeat all the enemies and bring peace, and Israel will finally be free, will finally be delivered. And though they are now ruled by Persia and they just got out of slavery in Babylon, there is yet other oppressors that are coming. There's Greece and then Rome that are coming. But when the Messiah comes, there will be real deliverance, lasting, eternal deliverance, and they will finally be home with him. Now, this passage is partially fulfilled in the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And in fact, both Matthew and John, when they describe this event, Jesus riding on a donkey into the city. Both of them, both of the gospel writers, are referencing and quoting this passage from Zechariah. So they're going back and they're connecting the dots, and they're quoting specifically verse 9 that talks about this triumphal entry. But they abbreviate it, and they actually leave pieces of it out. So both Matthew and John leave out the line that says, righteous and having salvation is he. And the reason being is because Zechariah's prophecies have only partially been fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus, and they will fully be fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus. So just like his immediate readers, we too are in the same place where we have seen certain prophecies fulfilled. We have seen certain promises kept already. And yet we're waiting for that final deliverance. We're waiting for the final homecoming. We're waiting for all his promises to be fulfilled when Jesus returns. Now that is actually the nature of hope. This is what hope is. This is where hope dwells. It's between the promises fulfilled and the promises made. And yet we're waiting for them to be fulfilled still. We live in that expectation of future fulfillment. And yet... We do that because we have found God to be faithful in the past and the present. So that's hope. Now, I want to focus on verses 11 and 12, and specifically on this one phrase, prisoners of hope. Prisoners of hope. According to this scripture, Christians are imprisoned. We are restricted by hope. Now, I'm taking it literally because I think there's a lot of meaning and there's a lot of application for us in just this one phrase. We are called prisoners of hope. We have been imprisoned by hope. We're restricted, confined by our hope of the return of Christ. Or to use another word, another image from our passage, Christians must take refuge in the stronghold in this fortress of hope. So I'd like us to to keep that image central in our minds, and I'd like us to consider this stronghold of hope, this stronghold of hope. Um, and we let's let's look at three things about it. Let's look at its nature first, at its function second, and its security third. So the stronghold of hope, its nature, its function, and its security. 
Now, please look with me at verse, verse 12. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Now, notice how a negative image, image of imprisonment, incarceration, is transformed into a positive image of security. The contrast is between the waterless pit from which God rescues his people, he pulls them out of that pit, and the stronghold or a fortress in which they are commanded to take refuge. Now, both are places of confinement, and yet one is negative and one is positive. And this image of being imprisoned is transformed from something negative into something positive for the believer. Now, a waterless pit is a dry well that was used as a temporary prison. If you remember the story of Joseph, remember his brothers, before they sold him into slavery to the Midianites, they threw him into a pit, into this dry well, so they could, they could basically keep an eye on him so he wouldn't run away. And if you're thrown into one of those pits, you can't get out. You can't get out. You are completely dependent on, on someone else bringing you out. And often you would have to be pulled out with ropes. We have another passage in Jeremiah. Jeremiah gets in trouble. They throw him into a, an old cistern that just has a little mud in it, but no water. And he is left there, and they had to pull him out by ropes. Now, the idea here is that for somebody to be set free from a waterless pit, someone else has to come from outside and pull them out. They can't get out on their own. They're helpless, and they're hopeless, and somebody has to come and bring them out. And so are we helpless stuck, enslaved by sin, and our only hope, the only hope for sinners is deliverance by God himself. Which is why in the Old Testament, over and over again, you get this phrase, salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, this is the gospel from the Old Testament. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to us. Deliverance does not belong to sinners. We cannot fix ourselves. We cannot pull ourselves out of that pit. But God can. And you get to the New Testament, what you see is the same idea phrased differently, and it's phrased as we are saved by grace. We are saved by grace. The same idea. That if we are to be saved, if we are to be delivered out of slavery to sin, out of all the consequences of sin, out of being stuck helpless in the mud in the old cistern, the only way it can happen if God reaches down and brings us out. That's grace. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and we are saved by grace. That's the waterless pit out of which God rescues us. But then you have this idea of a stronghold or, or a fortress. It's a defensive structure designed to preserve and protect during an invasion. A good stronghold could be defended with a small army. It had its own supply of water. It was prepared to survive a long siege. And if you lived in a village or if you were farming in the area and you heard of an enemy coming, the first thing you would do is you would run to the stronghold. You would run to the local fortress where there's a garrison of soldiers and you will expect to be there until the enemy is either defeated or they just get tired and leave. Now, in both places, in the waterless pit of a prison cell and in the stronghold and the fortress, 
that person, person who's there is confined. The person is, is restricted. In a prison, confinement is their punishment. In a stronghold, confinement is their salvation. In the first instance, a person is constrained with the goal of harming them. In the second, the goal is to help them. But the reality, the physical reality, is actually very similar. Now consider a person locked in a small windowless room in a house. It is possible, maybe even likely, that they are imprisoned against their will. Maybe even they're being tortured or abused. They need to be rescued. Then somebody needs to come in and, and break the door down and rescue that person out of that basement. It is also possible that they went into a panic room in their house when someone broke in, and they are kept safe from danger. The panic room has saved them. They don't need to be rescued out of that room. They need to be kept in that room to be safe. Now, you're beginning, are you beginning to see the positive nature of being a prisoner of hope? It's an image that is usually has negative connotations that is now flipped, and the Lord does that often. It's flipped to give us a positive picture. The same confinement, the same reality of being restricted, bound in some way, limited, and yet one is negative, being bound by sin, and one is positive, being kept safe in the stronghold of God's hope. Now, we see this idea of being restricted and confined for our good all over Scripture. And let me just speak to those of you who feel that maybe the walls are closing in right now, and you feel like it's getting tight, that the, the way is narrow, and you feel constricted and constrained and limited maybe more than before. Now, I want you to wrestle with that, but wrestle with that in this way, ask the question, is it the Lord's doing? And if it is the Lord's doing, it is for your safety and for your good. Now, this image of, of narrowness and confinement and being restricted is actually all over the Scriptures as a good thing. Now, it could be negative, but it could be good. So, for example, when God made covenants with, with people throughout the Scriptures, He demanded that they would worship only Him. He promised that he would be their God, but that they would be their people, and, their peop and his people would only worship him. I'll be your God, you will be my people, you can only worship me. You can't have any other gods, you can't, have worship, you can't worship any other idols. This is an exclusive, unique relationship between people and God. This whole idea of monotheism is very limiting, isn't it? Is it religious prison? Just confine the person to, to the worship of only one God, only this God, only the God who revealed himself in this way. That seems very limiting, and it is, of course. But it's not a prison, it's a stronghold if we accept that the other gods are not real. If we accept that, that idolatry is a dead end, if we accept that false worship is harmful and destructive, exclusive worship of the Lord then is a stronghold, not a prison. It keeps you safe, not keeps you bound for harm. 
Now consider the exclusive claims of Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now, many see this exclusivity as arrogance, right? How can you claim there's only one way to God? But what if Jesus is right, and, and, and there is destruction and death outside of himself? What if he's the only person that can give us life? What if he is the only way to God? Isn't this exclusive claim then good? Isn't it good then to set these limitations? Isn't it good and gracious for Jesus to say, come only through this narrow way because there's no other way to life and I want you to have life. So come through me. Limit yourself and only come through me. This exclusivity then becomes life-giving. Not a prison, but a stronghold. Now consider the narrowness of God's law. David says in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. Perfect. How can something so restrictive be good, let alone perfect? Lots of Christians are struggling with that. Lots of people left the church because of this. Because we see that, that those restrictions, the commandments of God, the rules of God, we see them as, as limiting and infringing on our goodness, infringing on our freedom. Many people see God's commandments as oppressive. But what if these commandments actually come from our Creator? What if they come from the only one who really knows how we are supposed to live? If we were convinced that the law of God leads to the best life possible as defined by the only person who can define it, which is God himself, if we were convinced of that, wouldn't we want to follow all of his instructions? Now, do you see how this narrowness of the law is not actually oppressive, but it's freeing because it leads you to life. It leads you to actually where you want to go. And instead of leaving you wandering around, right, looking for your best life, God says, here's the way. Here's the way. It's, it's limited, yes. It's exclusive, absolutely. But these restrictions become safety. They become security. They become protection. Perhaps one of the best illustrations come from the Odyssey. Not from my old van, but from uh, the Odyssey. as a Homer's Odyssey. Lots of illustrations come from my old van that I've shared before and I'm sure we'll share again. But uh, and if you're not familiar with the Odyssey, it's a, it's a story out of which probably most stories in the Western uh, literature come from. It's the idea of homecoming. This hero, um, Odysseus, is coming home from war and he encounters all these adventures on the way. And one of the kind of the most well-known episodes uh, of his, one of his adventures on the way home is when he's sailing past this island, the island of the sirens. Remember that story? And the sirens were monsters that pretended to be beautiful women. They would, they would sing, sing these songs and they would bewitch sailors to turn into the harbor and their ships will, will, will be wrecked against the rocks and then those sailors would end up 
uh, adding to the meadow of the skeletons in the island of, of the sirens. Now Odysseus was wise and cunning and he, he had been warned by a goddess that this would happen and that he'd been warned that don't listen to the singing because you can't resist it. So he, he gave out wax to all his companions and told them to stop your ears with wax so you, can't, you actually can't physically hear the songs. But he wanted to hear. So he asked his companions to tie him to the mast of the ship. And he told them, no matter what I tell you, do not untie me. And luckily, they, they, kept, they kept their word. They, they followed his orders. And he was able to hear, and he was trying to get out. And he was trying. He had actually, he, he wounded himself by, by, by pulling so hard on the ropes that tied him to the mast. And still, he was the only person who was able to hear the sirens and yet survive. No. Was that restriction good? Was it good to tie him to the mast? Yes, because it gave him life, you see? Was it a prison? No. It looked like he was imprisoned. Even against his will, it seemed like at times, right? And yet at the same time, that restriction and the faithfulness of his companions to not, not do what he wanted him to do, right, actually gave him life and became safety, became a stronghold. Now, if you think about all these things, about this, this good restriction that God, that God gives us, whether it's exclusivity of the gospel or the goodness of his law or worshiping the only God the way he wants to be worshiped, or even the restriction that our hope, the hope of Christ's return brings into our lives, my question to you is, have you, have you embraced that, the goodness of it? I'm not talking about begrudgingly obeying. I'm not talking about begrudgingly saying, yes, I believe, I wish I didn't, but I do. That's not what I mean. I mean for your hearts to be moved and see the goodness of the stronghold. To say, I am glad that I can take refuge in the stronghold of hope. This is not a prison for me. It's a blessing to me. It is salvation to me to run to the stronghold of hope and be safe from the enemy. Now, let me say this as carefully as I can. There's a lot of Christians... I don't know where their hearts are. I'm not making any judgment on their salvation. But there's a lot of professing believers who have been rescued from the waterless pit, but they are not interested in finding a stronghold. And they're wandering around in the wilderness. They're walking around looking for water. And there is no water unless you go into the stronghold. <clears throat> the Lord has prepared a supply for you the Lord has prepared a place of safety for you. But you got to take refuge in the stronghold. you got to accept the limitations. you got to accept the restrictions. And you got to accept that they are good for you. That this is not God out of his meanness trying to spoil your fun. This is not what God is doing. God is actually leading you to a place of security, to a place of hope. Now, it, it can apply to all sorts of situations in your life. You may be in, in a season of suffering right now. Well, what is suffering if not God bringing these restrictions? If not God putting you in a narrow place, in a tight place? Now, will you see hope there? Will you see the goodness of what God is doing? 
Will you be able to process it through the, the, the prism of the gospel? Wrestle with it. Don't give up on wrestling with that. But see the stronghold as a positive thing as not, and not a prison in which God is throwing you. Now, that's the nature of the stronghold of hope. Now, what is its function? We already touched on it, but the function is to protect, to rescue, to ensure safety and danger, to preserve life. That's why God wants to, you to go to the stronghold of hope. Now, the question is, how does hope fit into it? Now, we're called prisoners of hope, after all. What is this hope that secures and, and protects us? It is God's promise. The hope is God's promise of restoration. The hope that keeps you safe, that protects you in that stronghold, that justifies the limitations, the hope is the promise of restoration. Now look at verse 12. Return to your stronghold or prisoners of hope. That's the command. And then God promises something. He says, today I declare, this is God says, so God says, today I declare that I will restore to you double. I will restore to you double. As we take refuge in the stronghold of hope, we wait for the enemy to be defeated and for all that we have lost to be restored to us. The stronghold of hope is temporary. That's not your permanent place. Hope will not be needed once all God's promises are fulfilled. Hope will not be in eternity. Neither will faith, only love. Only love remains. So what is, what is this promise of restoration? Well, God says that he will restore to us double. Pay attention to God's words, okay? God isn't just throwing it around. This is not just to, to make you feel warm inside during Christmas season. You know, this is not what God is doing. He means every word that he says. And so God says, I will restore to you double. It means that we will receive more than we have lost. This is an amazing reality. Not only does the Lord promise to erase the effects of sin, but he also promises to give us more than we had to begin with. Now, th think about it this way. The Lord rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. He took them out, right? So he took them out of the waterless pit. He rescued them. He led them out. However, he did not leave them wandering homeless in the wilderness. He promised them a land, a land of their own. He promised to give them inheritance and blessing in the land. You see, double restoration. They were taken out of slavery. That's one restoration. The negative is gone. Now the positive is added on top of that. They were given what they did not have before they went into Egypt. Notice that it wasn't just the restoration, now go home and take back what you had. No, no, no. Be rescued out of slavery, now receive more than you had before. And so it is for Christians. By grace, we have been rescued from the penalty of sin. When Jesus finds you, he, God's wrath is lifted. Okay, you're not condemned anymore. You're not under condemnation of God. There's no penalty of sin on you anymore. The, the minute you meet Jesus, 
and you place your faith in Jesus, there's no more condemnation for you. Now, that's, that's part of the restoration, right? He restores you back to what you were supposed to have, to that original state of innocence. He sets you free from the waterless pit. He lifts you up. But that is only half of what God does. It's only half of his restoration. Then he promises an inheritance to you. When Jesus returns, he will welcome us into his kingdom where we will rule with him forever. Now, we didn't have that before. So not only does he take away the effects of sin, he also gives us something on top of that. That's double restoration. This is what the Lord promises to us. This is our hope as we, as we hold on for dear life in the stronghold of hope. We're thinking about double, double restoration. That the Lord will not only rescue us, but he will give us double. Whatever damage sin has caused in your life will be repaired. And we will experience, on top of that, we will experience glory that we cannot even imagine. There are things coming to you, you you can't envision because you've never had that. You see, you can't, you can't really compare it to anything because, yes, you will be restored what you've lost, but you will also be given something on top of that that you don't, you don't really know how to relate to. You've never had that. Death has been defeated, but now a new life has been promised to you. Not just old life restored, right? But a new life has now been given to you, and it's a different kind of life. Our debts have been forgiven, and yet, on top of being forgiven, and our balance is now right. Now, balance is not zero, right, at salvation. Now you're given riches you can't, you can't imagine. Christ shares his wealth with you. So now you become a co-heir with Christ. That, that's not what you started with. This is what you gain through Christ, not just salvation, not just being rescued from the waterless pit, but now you're promised an inheritance. Christ's work does not just return us to the state of innocence. It also contains the promise of moving us into the state of permanent holiness. That's something Adam didn't have. That's something Eve didn't have. We will have that. We will gain it through Christ. Not only restored to the state of Adam, but now being exalted and lifted up higher than Adam and Eve. Because Jesus is the new Adam, a new and better Adam. Now, this, this double restoration, this double work of Christ um, is, is real even now because we're moving into that, that the double restoration is happening even now. It, it won't be complete until he returns, but even now you can sense that in your life. As one poet put it, rock of ages cleft for me. Hide, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. The double cure. Safe from wrath and make me pure. The double cure. Safe from wrath. Lift me up of the waterless pit and then make me pure. Give me something that I didn't have before. It removes the bad of sin, and it adds the good of God's holiness to your life. And it is this experience of, of the double cure of the gospel, this, ex, this promise of double restoration that actually keeps us safe in the fortress of hope until 
Christ returns. And so we wait in that promise. We wait in that expectation that when Jesus returns, he will transform this stronghold of hope into a new city. The stronghold is not your permanent dwelling. This is temporary. This is just as you wait. But when, when you're done waiting, when Jesus comes, he will give you a new city. And notice how this new city is described in Revelation 21. It's Revelation 21, beginning in verse 22. Now, as I read this, notice how much more it is than the stronghold of hope you're in now. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is a picture of the double restoration. This is, the, this is the vision that we must have even as we are hiding and taking refuge in the stronghold of hope. This is the picture because this is what God will do and this is what keeps us safe now. This is how hope constricts us and restrains us from despair because we keep our eyes on that vision. Now, you, you see the promise of double restoration fulfilled in this vision. It's not just a rebuilt temple, but God's very presence is there to the point that they, we don't even need the temple. Now, the, the returned exiles are building the temple. That's just partial restoration. They're rebuilding what they had lost in Babylon. But God says, not only will I let you rebuild, I'm going to give you something better than this because I will restore double to you. And so in the new Jerusalem, in the new heaven, in the new earth, we, we won't need a temple because we'll have God himself. Not just darkness removed, but the lamb becomes the light of the city. I mean, it's not just that it's light and it's easier to walk around, but God himself through Christ is shining his glory on us. Not just that the gates are secure and nobody can open them, but Gates are actually left open because there's no danger of invasion anymore. That's the difference between a stronghold of hope, right, where we shut the doors and we keep them securely locked because we don't want the enemy to come in, to the full double restoration when the gates are open because nobody who's evil, no enemy is going to come into the city. And by the way, not just that enemies are kept outside the walls, as in the partial restoration, but the nations are bringing their glory into the city. Now those who used to be enemies are allies. And they're coming to worship the Lord. And they're bringing the best that they have to offer to the Lord as a gift. This is our hope. This is what keeps us waiting in the stronghold. Do you see this hope, this hope of his return, this hope of double restoration as protecting you even now, as giving you security even now, as bringing stability to your life even now, because nothing you're losing right now 
you won't lose eternally. <laughs> Nothing that you're losing right now, everything will be given back to you and more. Double restoration. You will have things that you never even dreamed you would have. Now finally, how do we know our king will return and rescue those who are waiting for him in the stronghold? Is the stronghold strong enough to survive until his return? Some of you are probably wondering about that now. I'm, I'm, I'm holding on to this hope, but I don't know how long I can, I can keep going here. Can you trust the promise of double restoration? Can you trust that the Lord will return? That he will do what he said he would do? Will the walls and the gates of the fortress hold until then? That's the question. Now, if you visit Trackware House in Scotland, this is your Scottish history update of, of the week. If you visit this, this Trackware House, which is the oldest continually inhabited house in Scotland, many centuries of people living in the same, same place. My house was built in the 50s. This is a very different comparison here. Hundreds of years, generations of living in the same place. You will find, if you visit it today, you will find that one of its gates has been locked since 1745. Nobody's opened those gates since 1745. It's a lot of years, right? Uh, they're called the bear gates because they have statues of bears that used to be hunted in that area right, right on the gates. They had only been, been uh, built uh, just a few years before, and uh, after... The, after visiting, um, there, there was this, this political leader, military leader, who was part of the Stuart dynasty, Bonnie Prince Charlie Stuart. And he was coming to uh, Tranquil House to, to kind of honor his supporters. And when he exited through those gates in 1745, they locked it and never opened them again. Now, the idea was that Charlie was on his way to London to defeat the current king and to take the throne and restore the Stuart dynasty. And the, the earl of the house, the earl of the Chanquer house, was so excited about this prospect. And by the way, he was a distant cousin of, of Bonnie Prince Charlie. He said, we will not open these gates until the Stuart dynasty is restored in London. 1745, he said that. No, no dynasty, no Stuart dynasty has been restored. Bonnie Prince Charlie lost a battle on the way to London uh, and, and himself went into exile. And the last male descendant of the Stuart kings died in 1807. So it doesn't look like the stug gates will be opened again. Now that's an illustration of a foolish hope, right? How do we know we are not foolish in our hope? How do we know that we're not just hanging out in a fortress hoping that maybe, maybe a king will show up and open the gates? Is our hope foolish too? Are we waiting for something that is never going to happen? Well, not according to verse 11. The Lord says, and look at how he roots this promise. He says, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you. 
I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit because of the blood of my covenant with you. The promise of this double restoration, the promise of rescue, the promise of the second return of Christ in glory is rooted in the blood of the covenant. Now, whenever you seal an agreement with blood, right, it makes it pretty important, makes the commitment greater and more more reliable. The implicit statement is that it is important enough to spill blood, right? When I'm making a deal with you and I say, come on, let's just seal it with blood really quick, you know I'm serious. You know there's something happening that is beyond just a normal oral agreement. And of course, the Jews of the time were were well familiar with this idea. In fact, the first thing that the returned exiles rebuilt when they came back to Jerusalem was the temple altar because they needed to bring sacrifices to the Lord. They needed to be reminded that God's commitment to them is sealed with blood. So they would bring animals day after day, many animals, to remind God and to remind themselves that this is a real covenant. This is an unbreakable agreement. It's, it's important enough for blood to be spilled. But of course, something greater is meant in our passage. The context is the coming of the Messiah. Now, why did Jesus enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey and greeted by the crowds? It wasn't to ascend the throne of David. Now, that is yet to happen when he returns. He came to ascend the cross. He came to spill his own blood. He went into the waterless pit on the cross so we could secure our double restoration. Remember Jesus on the cross crying out, I thirst, I thirst bound to the cross, imprisoned, tortured, abused. Why? To prove the covenant. To say this covenant will hold, I will return. This commitment is so important, I will spill my blood. And I will seal this covenant by my own life. Hebrews 9 pulls it all out and and, and draws all these implications out of the Old Testament. And it says that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, temple imagery, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Not a temporary redemption, not a temporary rescue, but an eternal redemption. Unlike Bonnie Prince Charlie Stewart, our king has not been defeated, nor is he dead. He will return just as he has promised. He will return in glory and in power. He will take the throne. He will establish his eternal kingdom, and we will no longer need to take refuge in the stronghold of hope because all his promises will come true.